This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence, suicide, and sexual assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Heather Sigler leaned on the jewelry store counter, absentmindedly watching the clock. Her face brightened when a group of customers came through the front door a couple with two little girls and a baby. Heather greeted them warmly, but her smile faded when she recognized the man approaching the register. It was Matt Baker, the preacher at a nearby Baptist church. He wasn't with his wife, Carrie, and flirted with the young woman next to him without a hint of guilt or shame. Heather couldn't believe it. She gaped as Matt pulled a set of rings from his pocket He said they belonged to his wife, but that he wanted to exchange them for something new. Before Heather could answer, the young woman yelped with glee. She beamed and pointed to an engagement ring that she liked. Matt was selling his wife's rings to buy jewelry for another woman. She turned away in disgust. She didn't know what had happened to Matt Baker, but he certainly wasn't acting like a minister. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a ParCast original. The legal definition of a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, We explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Crimes of Passion for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing 
reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. Last week, we talked about how Texas preacher Matt Baker preyed on young women while leading a double life as a mild-mannered husband and father. Matt's wife, Carrie Baker, refused to believe she was married to a predator. She ignored red flags for nearly 12 years until 2006, when she began to suspect that Matt was having an affair. This week, we'll detail Matt's deadly plot to get Carrie out of his life. We'll also discuss the initial pitfalls of the resulting investigation and how Carrie's friends and family finally found the truth. In their nearly 12 years of marriage, 31-year-old Carrie Baker and her husband, 34-year-old Matt, had gone through many ups and downs. In 1999, they weathered a heartbreaking tragedy when they lost their second-born daughter, Cassidy, to a battle with brain cancer. Carrie's grief was crushing, but as the years passed, her friends and family said she learned to accept the loss. Seven years later, in the spring of 2006, Carrie realized that her marriage with Matt was deteriorating. She didn't know that her husband had a history of sexually assaulting and harassing women at work. She didn't even know that he was having an affair with 24-year-old Vanessa Bowles, a member of his church. But Carrie did know that something was wrong. Matt seemed to be pulling away from her. After finding a bottle of crushed up pills in his briefcase, she even suspected that he wanted her dead. Yet, she ignored her gut instinct. She desperately wanted to believe everything was fine and that her marriage could be saved. It was a fatal mistake. On Friday, April 6, 2006, Matt and Carrie spent the evening at home with their two young daughters, Kenzie and Grace. After the girls went to bed, Matt and Carrie were left alone together. Without witnesses, there is no clear timeline of what happened that night. But according to Vanessa Bowles, Matt had a plan to kill his wife, and he confessed the details to Vanessa later. In the weeks leading up to the 6th, Carrie tried to rekindle her relationship with her husband. Matt had purchased supplements online that he told her would help boost their sex drive. According to Vanessa, that Friday night, Matt secretly emptied the capsules of the sexual enhancement pills. He then filled the shells with crushed up Ambien instead. He had Carrie take the pills and encouraged her to drink wine coolers with the drugs. The combination of Ambien and alcohol soon made Carrie pass out. Once she was unconscious, Matt gave her a kiss on the forehead. Then he pressed a pillow to her face and smothered her. After she was dead, he prepared a suicide note, which he addressed to himself. It read, I am so sorry. I am so tired. I just want to sleep for a while. Please forgive me. Tell Kinsey and Grace that I love them very much. Tell my mom and dad that I love them too. I love you, Matt. I am so sorry for the past few weeks. I want to give Cassidy a hug. I need to feel her again. Please continue to be the great dad to our little girls. Love them every day. I am sorry. I love you, Carrie. 
Instead of trying to replicate Carrie's handwriting, Matt typed the whole note out, including her name at the bottom, and printed it. He brushed Carrie's hand across the note to leave fingerprints on it. Then he placed it on a nightstand next to their bed. He also left a nearly empty bottle of Unisom tablets next to the note. Carrie sometimes took the mild sleep aid before bed, although she usually purchased a cheaper generic version of the drug. Once he'd staged the suicide scene, Matt left the house. Around 11.15 p.m., he drove to a gas station to fill up his SUV. Then he went to a video store, rented a DVD, and picked up snacks. He returned to his house around midnight. When he got home, he dialed 911 and told the dispatcher he believed his wife had just committed suicide. He remained on the line while waiting for the ambulance to arrive. At one point, he told the dispatcher that he was performing CPR on Carrie. But when first responders arrived, Matt wasn't in the bedroom trying to revive his wife. Instead, he was standing at the doorway, waiting to let the EMTs in. Moments later, the police also arrived. They questioned Matt while paramedics tried to revive Carrie. Matt told them that he and his wife had been watching TV when Carrie asked him to go get gas and rent a movie. He was gone for about 45 minutes, and when he returned, he found the bedroom door locked. He opened it with a screwdriver and found Carrie unresponsive in bed. But the EMTs noticed that Carrie's body was cool to the touch. They saw signs of lividity, evidence that blood had begun pooling in the lower parts of her body. It appeared that Carrie had been dead for longer than the 45-minute time frame Matt claimed to be out of the house. Still, after investigators examined Carrie's suicide note, plus the nearly empty bottle of Unisom on the nightstand, they didn't see any evidence of murder. Consuming Unisom on its own is unlikely to cause death, even in high concentrations. But medical professionals later speculated that Carrie may have vomited after taking the pills and then aspirated or choked. There was no evidence of vomit at the scene, but Matt claimed he had found some and then cleaned it up. William Martin, the local justice of the peace, declared the official cause of death to be suicide. When police asked if they should autopsy the body, he said it wasn't necessary. Once the police had left the house, Matt called Carrie's parents, Linda and Jim Doolin, and broke the news of their daughter's death. When he told them Carrie had committed suicide, Linda couldn't believe it. She had spoken to her daughter on the phone earlier that afternoon, and Carrie seemed in high spirits. She hadn't said anything that would indicate she felt particularly depressed. Before I continue with Carrie's psychology, please note that I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. According to the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, most people who take their lives exhibit one or more warning signs either through what they say or do. Warning signs can include talking about suicide or hopelessness and changes in behavior or mood. Matt insisted that Carrie had changed prior to her death, but none of Carrie's other family members agreed. The confusion only grew as the night dragged on. After speaking with Matt, Linda shared the news with Carrie's cousin, Lindsay. She was particularly close to Carrie and had a hard time believing she was suicidal. 
she also had reason to distrust Matt. Years earlier, Matt had made flirtatious comments to her friend, Aaron Calverly, while his own baby daughter was in the hospital with cancer. When Lindsay heard the news, she told her mother, Carrie didn't kill herself, Matt killed her. Lindsay wasn't alone in suspecting Matt, but she had no proof of any wrongdoing. She and many other women in the family didn't want to upset Linda and Jim with their suspicions until they knew more. They assumed an autopsy would be conducted and didn't find out until later that the justice of the peace had declined to order one. Meanwhile, Matt continued to make calls to Carrie's friends and coworkers, spreading the news of her death. That weekend, many members of the community dropped by the Baker House to offer their condolences, bring food and flowers, and visit with Matt and the girls. Vanessa Bowles went with her parents on one of these visits. As the family expressed their sympathies, Matt looked over at Vanessa and winked. On Monday, April 10th, a large crowd gathered for Carrie's funeral. Everyone seemed stricken with grief, her daughters, Kinsey and Grace, wept at their father's side, but Matt remained stoic throughout. His mother, Barbara, later said, "'We're not the type to break down and cry. Crying and screaming and wringing our hands is not who we are. If people judged on how he reacted, I can't do anything about that.'" Vanessa Bowles and her family were also among the attendees. That night after the service, Matt called Vanessa at her parents' house. Phone records show that he called her several times over the next few days. According to Vanessa, they also met in person, five days after Carrie's death. She claimed that Matt told her everything that happened the night of the murder. Then he said he never wanted to talk about it again. He added, You know you are stuck with me, right? Because you know about it and are just as guilty as I am. Vanessa sat frozen on the couch, staring at her lover. His expression was completely calm, as if he was talking about the weather. His tone didn't match the words he was saying at all. She couldn't tell if he was threatening her or not. She had spent weeks talking herself into this relationship. It wasn't her ideal, an affair with a married man, but it was something, better than being alone. Now she wondered why she'd ignored her gut. Vanessa's mind swirled as she thought back to the funeral. Matt's wife, dead, lying in a casket. It still didn't feel real, even as she sat next to Matt, listening to him tell her that they were in this together. Together, maybe he was right. They were the only two people in the world who knew the truth, it was too late to try to break away, and it wasn't worth trying. If she left, she'd only find more problems. Perhaps the police would go after her. Maybe Matt would turn on her. The only choice she had was to stay quiet and not make trouble. After all, Matt was good to her. He was kind to her daughter. That was all that really mattered. Matt reached out to stroke Vanessa's face. She let him. Within a matter of days, Matt acted as if Carrie's death was completely behind him. 
He quickly went back to work at the church. He seemed eager to resume his normal life as soon as possible. It only took a few weeks for members of his congregation to notice that he was spending a lot of time with Vanessa Bowles. Without missing a beat, Matt replaced his wife of over a decade with a new girlfriend. Up next, Carrie's family desperately calls for an investigation into her death. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now, back to the story. In April of 2006, 34-year-old Matt Baker was convinced he'd gotten away with murder. The death of his wife, Carrie, had been ruled a suicide. Matt wasted no time completely erasing her memory from his life. He acted as if she'd never existed at all. He even gave Carrie's old cell phone to his mistress, Vanessa, so that they could talk more frequently. Phone records would later show 565 calls between them in April alone. Two weeks after Carrie's death, Matt hosted a sleepover for his older daughter Kenzie's 10th birthday. Carrie's friend, Jenny Muncie, offered to help him plan. She didn't want Matt to have to do everything himself so soon after Carrie's death. But on the day of the party, Jenny found Vanessa Bulls at the Baker House hanging decorations. Once Vanessa and Matt were finished, they left to pick up his girls from school while Jenny waited at the house. Looking around the living room, she noticed that all the photographs of Carrie were gone. Matt had hung a new family picture on the fridge, one that included Vanessa and her baby daughter. <laughs> Later during the party, while everyone was watching a movie, Jenny looked over to see Vanessa lying on the couch with her head in Matt's lap. She felt uncomfortable and left. She couldn't believe Matt would brazenly parade his new girlfriend in front of the girls, but Matt didn't seem to care what anybody thought. Around the same time, Matt and Vanessa were also spotted shopping for an engagement ring at the local jewelry store. The store clerk recognized Matt, but not his new girlfriend, she was shocked when Matt asked about trading in Carrie's old rings to buy new ones for Vanessa. She wasn't the only one who was appalled. Matt began preparing family members for his future with Vanessa as well. Sometime that month, he brought his daughters to visit with Carrie's parents. Linda pushed Matt to consider putting the girls in grief counseling, but he claimed that Grace and Kenzie had already moved on. He said they were looking forward to a new mother. 
Linda was shocked at her son-in-law's callousness, but her sisters and nieces, Carrie's aunts and cousins, weren't surprised. Many members of the family were more convinced than ever that Matt wasn't who he claimed to be. At the end of April, some of the women shared their suspicions with Linda. Linda couldn't bring herself to believe them at first. Now that Carrie was dead, Matt was her only connection to her grandchildren. She didn't want to think badly of him, but she couldn't deny his odd and even offensive behavior. He didn't seem to grieve for Carrie at all. He claimed he did everything for the girls and that Carrie had been too depressed to be a proper parent. His negative comments infuriated Linda. She knew how much Carrie had loved her children. She couldn't understand why Matt would lie. Linda became more suspicious as time went on. In the late spring of 2006, she decided to do some investigating of her own. Carrie and Matt were on a shared phone plan with her. She decided to pull their phone records in search of any unusual activity. The records showed that Matt made regular calls to Vanessa Bowles long before Carrie's death. It was clear that their relationship was not a recent development. Crushed and upset, Linda then got in touch with a social worker Carrie had confided in, Joanne Bristol. Joanne revealed what Carrie had told her at their last session. She was anxious that Matt was having an affair and worried that he wanted to kill her. The phone records prove that Carrie had been right about the affair. Had she been right about Matt trying to kill her as well? In mid-May, Carrie's family contacted the Hewitt Police Department about Carrie's case. Their questions were met with resistance. Carrie's Aunt Kay said police seemed irritated with them for prying. The chief of police told Carrie's mother that she was wasting her time. But Carrie's family kept pushing and kept calling. Eventually, nearly two months after Carrie's death, officers finally agreed to bring Matt to the station for questioning. During their interrogation, Matt repeated everything he'd explained to police on the night Carrie died. He also went on at length about Carrie's depression, paranoia, and hair-trigger temper. He painted himself as a victim of Carrie's erratic moods. Matt also griped to the officers about Carrie's family. He said he was devastated that they considered him a suspect. He told the officers that he wanted a relationship with Carrie's family, but that they were making things difficult. Police next tried to catch Matt off guard. They asked him about a bottle of crushed up pills that Carrie had found in his briefcase before her death. At the time, he told Carrie that the pills probably belonged to the troubled teens he counseled at the Waco Center for Youth. But when police asked employees at the youth center, it became clear that Matt was lying. The teens were too closely supervised to have snuck pills into his bag. When the officers confronted Matt with this discrepancy, he wasn't phased. He easily lied again, saying the pills belonged to Carrie. These denials and gaslighting behaviors were characteristic of Matt. While investigating, Carrie's family hired a psychologist named Lee Carter to develop a psychological profile on him. Carter concluded, there is an elusive, manipulative quality to his personality. Psychiatrist Abigail Brenner 
has warned of the dangers of manipulative people, writing, they may appear respectable and sincere, but often that's just a facade. They will often take what you say and do and twist it around so what you said and did becomes barely recognizable to you. Matt constantly cast himself as innocent, putting the blame on anyone else he could. With these tactics, by the end of the interview, police seemed satisfied with his answers and let him go home. But even if the police declined to investigate Matt Baker, members of the community were not very pleased with their pastor. Some, like Carrie's family, viewed him as a suspect. Others may have simply felt that his relationship with Vanessa Bowles was inappropriate. The church deacons concluded that he was not fit to continue as minister at Crossroads Baptist Church. In June, they terminated his employment. Matt fought against his firing. He tried to appeal to the congregation, but he couldn't drum up enough support to overrule the decision. He was sorry to lose his position on the pulpit, but as a result, it gave him more time to spend with Vanessa. That summer, Matt requested a meeting with Vanessa's father, Larry. He asked for Larry's permission to date Vanessa officially. Surprised and uncertain, Larry responded that it was Vanessa's decision. For her part, Vanessa seemed all too happy to continue her relationship with Matt, even after everything he'd told her. She later said, as long as someone's good to me, I don't care about being in love. Matt talked about moving in with Vanessa, buying a house together and starting a new family. Vanessa smiled at Matt from the passenger seat of his new truck. He was prattling on about how happy she made him. It was nice, even better now that they didn't have to hide. As they drove, Matt pointed out for sale signs on the front lawns. Vanessa could almost picture herself in a home of her own. She imagined her little baby, Lily, with two big sisters to help look after her. The thoughts made her warm inside. Matt might not be the perfect man, but he might be able to give her the life she'd always wanted. She couldn't let that chance slip away, so she pushed away any nagging doubts. Vanessa knew what Matt was capable of, but he'd hated Carrie. He loved Vanessa. He would never hurt her. She repeated it to herself until it sounded like the truth. He would never hurt her. While Matt enjoyed his new freedom with his girlfriend, his former in-laws continued their personal investigation. On the advice of friends, they also hired two private investigators, John Bennett and Mike McNamara. With little progress in the official police inquiry into Carrie's death, they paid both men to conduct their own independent search. McNamara and Bennett spoke to Carrie's former therapist, dozens of friends and co-workers, and congregation members at Crossroads. McNamara later said, not a single person we talked to thought Carrie Baker committed suicide. After learning what they could about Carrie Baker's character, they then turned to Matt's. They discovered a police report filed years earlier by a young woman named Laura Wilson. Laura had accused Matt of sexually assaulting her at Baylor University. 
Unfortunately, by the time she felt comfortable making the report, the statute of limitations had passed. But it was their first clue that Matt was hiding a history of violent, predatory behavior. While they continued their search, Carrie's family kept the pressure on the Hewitt Police Department and on Judge Martin, the Justice of the Peace who had made the initial ruling on Carrie's cause of death. They regularly sent letters, wrote emails, and made phone calls asking for more to be done on Carrie's case. In July, their efforts finally yielded progress. Judge Martin had initially determined that no autopsy was necessary, but after three months of hearing from Carrie's family, he changed his mind. On July 10, 2006, Judge Martin signed an order agreeing to have Carrie's body exhumed from her grave. Carrie's family prayed that it would finally give them the answers they sought. Coming up, Matt tries to control the narrative as investigators learn the truth about his past. Life is full of what ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Now, back to the story. In April of 2006, 31-year-old Carrie Baker died suddenly. Her death was originally ruled a suicide, but as suspicions mounted against her husband, 34-year-old Matt Baker, investigators decided to take a closer look at the case. On July 10th, Waco Judge William Martin ordered Carrie's body exhumed so that an autopsy could be performed. Matt panicked when he learned about his wife's exhumation. He even rushed to the cemetery to see the empty grave for himself. The autopsy revealed that Carrie had not died of an overdose, nor had she aspirated on vomit as investigators initially assumed. The toxicology report revealed trace amounts of Unisom, but also found evidence of the sleeping pill, Ambien, a drug Carrie did not have a prescription for. Finally, the medical examiner also noted a bruise on her nose and mouth that could have come from being smothered. Even so, the results of the autopsy were inconclusive. The medical examiner couldn't determine a definite cause of death. To uncover as much information as they could, Carrie's parents decided to file a wrongful death suit against Matt Baker. This allowed them to subpoena records and depose witnesses under oath. They hoped with new evidence, the police would be able to press charges against Matt. After the exhumation, Matt felt the pressure of renewed public scrutiny and wanted to escape it. That July, he discussed moving with Vanessa back to his hometown in Kerrville, Texas. But Matt's family was not pleased with the idea of Vanessa joining him. His mother, Barbara, reportedly later said, I could see that woman was attached to my son. 
Her hands were all over him. Physical touch. I saw a high school girl crush all over a young man. It wasn't just Matt's family who thought it was a bad idea. As the police inquiry into Matt continued, Vanessa's crush started to wilt. She later claimed she'd been manipulated by Matt for months. That July, she began to feel ashamed about the relationship and worried about whether she might get in trouble with the law. The day after Carrie's body was exhumed, Vanessa called Matt to break up with him. Matt was furious. According to Vanessa, he kept saying, I killed my wife for you, and now you're leaving? Vanessa hung up on him and threw the phone away. She'd ended the relationship, but claimed she was afraid to come to the police with what she knew. She was ashamed to talk about the affair and doubted anyone would believe her over the word of a minister. So, she kept quiet. At the end of July, Matt moved to Kerrville without Vanessa. Soon afterward, police officers brought Vanessa to the station to answer questions. Vanessa lied to them, denying that her relationship with Matt was sexual and claimed that they'd only gone on a few innocent dates after Carrie's death. Authorities seemed to believe her. Vanessa's lies gave the police nothing new to work with. By that fall, the investigation had once again come to a standstill. Reportedly, the lead detective later said, I felt like Matt had probably killed Carrie. I just wasn't sure that we'd ever be able to prove it. While police were pessimistic about solving the case, the private investigators hired by Carrie's family continued to probe. McNamara talked to Jake Roberts, Matt's employer at the First Baptist Church of Waco. Roberts revealed that a teenage camp worker and a custodian had both accused Matt of sexually harassing them in the mid-90s. McNamara went on to look into Matt's employment at the Family Y, where he discovered Matt had been terminated for similar allegations from four women. Investigators reported their findings to Carrie's mother, Linda. Linda later said, More and more I realized that Matt had a dark side I knew nothing about. Matt was incapable of truly loving a woman, and I felt sadness for Carrie, that she died never really having been loved by a man. The Doolin's wrongful death lawsuit also allowed them to subpoena Matt's work internet search history from the Waco Center for Youth's network. Given what they knew about Matt's past, the investigators weren't surprised to find that he had visited a number of pornographic websites at work. But they also discovered internet searches about sleeping pills and overdoses. They could even pinpoint a day on which he added Ambien to his online shopping cart, but the purchase was not completed at that time. Again, investigators had uncovered suspicious evidence, but no definitive proof that Matt murdered Carrie. They could only hope that all the pieces would be enough to convince authorities of Matt's guilt. Once again, progress happened slowly. In August of 2007, Carrie's family requested an inquest into her death. They hoped that the evidence they'd collected would push Judge Martin to change the official cause of death from suicide to homicide. At the hearing, the judge listened to testimony from the medical examiner, EMTs who responded to Matt's 911 call, and members of the Hewitt Police Department. 
The witnesses spent hours pointing out all the holes in Matt's suicide claim. The fact that Carrie's note had been typed rather than handwritten and signed, that the body had been dead for longer than Matt suggested, that Carrie hadn't taken enough pills to intentionally overdose, and the bruising on her mouth and nose. Then there was Matt's affair, which gave him the motive to want Carrie dead and Carrie's own suspicions before she died. Ultimately, the judge declined to change the cause of death to homicide, but he did modify it from suicide to undetermined. For Carrie's family, it was a step in the right direction. After the judge ruled on the official cause of death, Carrie's family pleaded with the police to move the case forward. In September of 2007, the Hewitt Police Department arrested Matt Baker for his wife's murder. He was held at the county jail on a $200,000 bond. His hometown of Kerrville rallied around him in support. The community even helped raise the money for his release and defense. Once he was out of jail, Matt went on the offensive. He gave TV interviews and spoke with reporters around the country. He quoted Bible verses and played the role of the grieving husband, devastated over the loss of his wife. He prayed for God to forgive his in-laws for their unfair persecution, saying, I don't blame them. I understand they are hurting so deep inside that the only way for them to deal with this is to lash out at me. Therapist Darlene Lancer has described this kind of behavior among manipulative people as a tactic to maintain control. She stated, They may lie or act caring or hurt or shocked by your complaints, all to deflect any criticism and to continue to behave in an unacceptable manner. Chuck DeGroote, a professor of pastoral care and counseling at Western Theological Seminary, has described how damaging this kind of narcissistic behavior can be when exploited by church leaders. He wrote, Spiritual and emotional abuse have much in common, but spiritual abuse bears a particularly sinister twist as principles and maxims of faith are wielded as weapons of command and control. The victim feels just as perplexed and confused as one who has experienced emotional abuse, but experiences it from a seemingly more authoritative source, a holy source. Matt's interviews were upsetting enough, but in March of 2008, Carrie's family suffered another blow. Though police officers felt they had probable cause to arrest Matt, the assistant district attorney, Crawford Long, didn't feel confident enough to prosecute him. After the arrest, he had a window of 180 days to bring the case to a grand jury for an indictment, but he allowed the time to run out. The charges against Matt were dropped. The case seemed closed for good, but Carrie's family still wasn't ready to give up, and they were backed by members of the community. Shannon Gamble, the mother of one of Carrie's students, had been closely following the case. After the charges against Matt were dropped, she started a blog recounting the events. Her site attracted many readers in the Waco community, and her posts were quickly filled with supportive comments. Some residents took it a step further. 
Gamble began selling bumper stickers reading, Justice for Carrie, which appeared on cars across the city. Public opinion solidified against Matt, even among those who had once supported him. One of his former congregants at Crossroads told a reporter, what you have to understand is that he was a truly fine pastor. Whenever he preached, I felt like he was preaching directly to me. Now I just feel sick beyond belief. The public furor over the case sparked a renewed interest among law enforcement. In January of 2009, the district attorney's office decided to reinvestigate Carrie's death. They started with Vanessa Bowles. At first, Vanessa stuck to her initial story. She claimed ignorance and downplayed her relationship with Matt Baker. Her lies had worked earlier. Officers at the Hewitt Police Department had previously believed her. But investigators at the district attorney's office were more skeptical. They told her that if she didn't tell the truth, she might be charged as an accessory to murder. Then they offered her hope testimonial immunity. If she was willing to speak before the grand jury against Matt, the DA's office would not use her testimony against her. Vanessa settled in her chair before the jurors and tried to calm her nerves. She knew that she looked terrible. She'd been crying and had barely slept the night before. She didn't want to be here. She didn't want any part of this. She'd hope she'd put everything having to do with Matt Baker behind her. But there was no forgetting. She had nightmares about him sometimes. His low, tranquil voice, which once seemed so calming and authoritative, now struck her as cold and unfeeling. Deadly. Even with Matt so far away from her now, her blood still ran cold at the thought she would have liked to keep silent forever, but she had no intention of paying the price for Matt's crimes. So when the lawyer asked about Carrie Baker, Vanessa said, yes, he told me he killed her because of me. In March of 2009, Vanessa Bowles testified at length in front of the grand jury. Afterward, Matt Baker was indicted for murder. On January 13, 2010, the case went to trial. The prosecution presented much of the same evidence put forth at the inquest into Carrie's death, but this time they also had the testimony of Vanessa Bowles. The prosecution worried about her credibility as a witness, but Vanessa won the jury over during her testimony. She asked, what do I have to gain from this right now? I could possibly lose my job as a teacher, Everyone is looking at me really bad right now. I'm setting things right. On January 21st, after a week-long trial, a jury found Matt Baker guilty. They sentenced him to 65 years in prison. Matt's reaction was muted, only saying that he believed the jury made a mistake. Carrie's family felt only relief. Linda remarked, God told us he would not forsake us, and he hasn't. We have felt his arms around us through this entire process. We are blessed. After the trial, 
Carrie's parents petitioned for custody of their grandchildren, 14-year-old Kenzie and 9-year-old Grace, and succeeded. They were free to raise their granddaughters without Matt Baker's influence. After more than five years since Carrie's death, it was the closure they needed. Since then, Matt Baker has continued to insist that he is innocent, but he couldn't change his predatory habits, even in confinement. Soon after his conviction, he was disciplined for making obscene hand gestures toward female inmates as they passed him in the hallway. He has since been transferred from the county jail to the Huntsville State Prison. Hopefully, Matt will stay away from women and the pulpit for good. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We will be back Wednesday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Crimes of Passion for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Crimes of Passion on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, Sound design by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Christina Pamies, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Lainey Hobbs. <laughs>